And our next witness is a Mr. David Lease. David, can I get you to state your full name for the record, spelling your first and last name? Yes, my name is uh, David Lease, and my name is spelled D-A-V-I-D, and my last name is L-E-I-S. And do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? So help me God. Now, my understanding is, is that you trained in public policy and administration at Waterloo, Toronto, and Ryerson Universities. And uh, Queen's. And at Queen's. You have a master's degree in public policy from Queen's. Yes. And you have extensive work experience in public policy, including uh, working in many senior roles in government locally and provincially, in post-secondary institutions, including universities and polytechnics. You have served as the mayor of Woolwich and as a councillor with the Regional Municipality of Waterloo? Yes. And you have served in policy roles for cabinet committees at the province of Ontario as well. You are Chief Executive Officer of the Greater Kitchener-Waterloo Chamber of Commerce? Yes. You are presently Vice President at Frontier Centre for Public Policy? Correct. And the Frontier Centre was founded in 1999 as a non-partisan public policy think tank. Yes. And basically the mission is, is to advocate for better public policy. Correct. Now, I went through all of that just to point out that uh, you basically spent your life becoming an expert in public policy. Correct. And uh, <clears throat> you've been invited here today to comment on the public policy concerning how governments conducted themselves concerning COVID-19. And can you please share your thoughts with us on that? Yes, uh, good afternoon, everyone. It's an honor to be here. Um, my points are several, but in essence, uh, never in the history of, um, certainly in my lifetime, um, nor I believe um, sadly, in the lifetime of recent memory, has there been such a policy disaster? And that policy disaster is uh, very much um, articulated in many forms, both in terms of policy itself and associated principles of good practice of what makes for good public policy. But I would say also in terms of failure of critical institutions. Uh, Canadians were relying on institutions on the assumption that they would serve us. And sadly, they did not. And I could give you a 360 review. But I also have the point that as a student of public policy, I'm also a student of philosophy and history. And uh, sadly, um, we can see in history that this is a, an assault on our Canadian rights and freedoms. I cannot respectfully think of a right and freedom that was not violated. And finally, I'm deeply concerned. If you need to take a moment, you, you can. I understand, um, I think, and everyone in the audience appreciates that some of the witnesses are emotional, um, <clears throat> including myself when I give my opening addresses. So, Mr. Lees, please feel free to take time to clarify. But thank you thoughts. so much for your kindness. I'm deeply concerned about the future of our society in the context of an assault on our civic society. And I do not say this lightly because I am sure, like everyone, 
we're guided by particular values and principles. In my case, and certainly at many of my colleagues at the Frontier Center for Public Policy, those principles relate to principles of um, classical liberalism, principles that um, have an extraordinary history over thousands of years, an extraordinary history, particularly in the last thousand years, that relate to principles on the assumption that we are born free. We are born free and that we um, are, we have governments, the king, the queen, or whatever form of government is not above the law, but rather serves the people. And there are very clear sets of principles that have been violated within those principles, and I could go through them extensively. But I am very concerned about our society, given the impacts on all individuals and the layers within that society. And I apologize. No, I, I mean, I think uh, several people in your position, and I, I was speaking with another member of the Frontier Society yesterday who um, you know, shared the concern that literally liberal Western democracy is at a crossroads. Indeed and, it is. And depending on how this generation responds and how quickly, uh, it might be the end of this experience or experiment in Western liberalism. And, and my understanding is that's why you're finding this emotional, is because you are concerned about where this is going. Indeed I am. I have served my country in many different capacities. And it is atrocious what has happened. From the very beginning, there were numerous signs that would have tweaked in any rational decision maker massive red flags. And it is, I realize this is like peeling the perennial onion where we did not know all the information at the beginning. And that is part of being human, but it was also by design. And in my opinion, it is, a, it is indeed a travesty what has happened. And the signs were numerous. I am a, a, a student of, of statistics and I know enough sense to also consult with a myriad of people. And from the beginning, it was very clear that the statistics of mortality did not make this the Spanish flu. It was obvious. And I have dared so many officials to debate this publicly, any time, any place. The mortality rate was not there. We knew that the persons that were vulnerable were persons classically of an older profile of multiple health challenges, and they needed to be protected. But to lock down a society is outrageous. The costs are profound. If we look at the myriad of analyses, economic, social, psychological, education on every age category, and not the least of which is on health, we know a lockdown measure was never, ever envisioned and we didn't follow the plan. 
As a former mayor, I am trained in emergency management. I have gone through um, tough situations. And as a matter of course, we would always, thank you, always follow the emergency plan. Standard operating procedure. And part of that method, methodology, to be clear, is that in any emergency, it is the head elected official that takes charge and brings together an integrative team across all disciplines, all areas, fire, police, every department, including private actors, and brings them around a table like this and does the analysis. What is the situation? What are the risks? And what are the options that we can undertake to not only deal with the disaster, but to also mitigate it in such a way that minimizes the impacts on the rest of the community, the province, or the country? It is a huge head-scratcher that those plans were developed and never followed. And from this, from, from fairly early on in the pandemic, a colleague of ours, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel uh, David Redman, who has done so many emergency plans, his head spins, he did the pandemic plans for a number of jurisdictions, including, I believe, the Armed Forces and the province of Alberta and they never followed those plans. These are huge red flags that is, is, um, needs to be looked into in terms of, of judgment or competency, I'm not quite certain, or whether it was just hiding behind the good name of a doctor to avoid political responsibility out of fear. And I know what it's like to be elected. I know what it's like to come in a room with a lot of people who are very upset and very concerned about their safety. And we just followed the kind of core narrative that I believe was largely spilling out of the United States and um, facilitated elsewhere. But we didn't do our job. I feel that decision makers didn't do their job to do that kind of incisive policy analysis. And I get at the very beginning that there's known unknowns, but we knew that the, the, the uh, People's Republic of China was not following World Health Protocol. They signed that agreement, they did not share the information in a timely manner, and that raised red flags. They locked down Wuhan, but they continued international flights. They were facilitating the spread of this virus. And you could tell it from the very beginning. And that's from a layperson's point of view, so I want to be careful about that. But the reality is that there were signs from the very beginning that we were not following best practices on policy, and we were going to hurt a lot of people. And that's outrageous. And it's immoral. How do you feel about um, <coughs> federally... Um, and in the province of Manitoba, the, uh, not just the governing parties, but the opposition and, and other parties that were in parliament and the legislature uh, concerning their, I guess, whether or not they listened to the populace or you felt um, they were, t I, I guess the frustration is, and I'll just rephrase my question, it seems that every party fell in lockstep so it seems like every institution fell in lockstep. It, was there a college of physicians and surgeons in any province that acted differently than the others? Was there a political party in any province or federally that acted differently than the others? And you, and you, you study this type of thing, so I'd like your comments mm -hmm. on that. And if, if, you know, as best you can, if you could offer an explanation for how is it that that everyone is, is doing the same thing and yet nobody's following the plan. Well, sadly, I, um, or we were shocked that we heard crickets. 
on so many fronts. There were persons behind the scenes who clearly were concerned asking what we thought were the logical questions and doing, um, I think, a, a fair amount of due diligence behind the scenes. But peculiar things were going on that I think need to be kept in perspective. One of which is the media chorus was uniformly a message of fear and hysteria. And these are very disturbing for any elected official then because they do not want to be seen as being offside. They don't want to be seen as caring when in fact seeking the truth is actually caring. This is the, the supreme irony of this. And it was so easy, I think, for any decision-making elected official, let alone body, a professional body, to go along with these narratives because they were um, placed in such an emotional, psychological quadrant. And, and this is dangerous because it, it, it disables the ability of a population to take a deep breath and say, look, we make decisions based on rational thinking, not just emotion. Okay. And I can talk endlessly about what I think around what was orchestrated there. And if you don't mind if I kind of take you just in a different direction, it's just that you have some experience um, and so your thoughts would be helpful, but <clears throat> it, it is not unfair to say that the public narrative that we were being fed was completely false and very destructive. And it, let's just say hypothetically we accept that as a proposition. And let's say I'm a premier of a province and I understand that the mainstream media narrative is incorrect and is going to be tremendously damaging in my province if I follow it but, and you're sharing with us, though, that they, they don't want to be offside. And I think a lot of us had wondered this, like, how does a politician resist such um, a sustained and consistent um, media narrative that was terrorizing the community? Does the premier basically send in the, the police to be looking for evidence of, you know, fraud or misleading? Like, what, what can a premier do? And, and, you know, maybe we'll have some premiers watching. I'm just trying to figure out what, what on earth could an elected official that truly wanted to do the right thing um, but understands that the media machine can just annihilate him or her, how, how, do they, how would they stop this in the future? Well, I, I can speak... Um in a number of respects. One is, um, I know what I did. When I went through crises, I would work to communicate the information that we had, and I would communicate with confidence, not fear, but confidence that we had a powerful team and we were going to get through this. We would share information with panels of experts on toxicology, I'm thinking in this case of, of um, a particular water crisis that we worked at. The onus was on us to intelligently share with people as citizens the information that we had and the associated risks so that they could have um, a, a fairly transparent picture of what we knew. Okay, so almost like daily briefings like that fellow in New York was doing except telling the truth and having experts telling the truth. I, I, I think that's an advisable thing okay. to do. No, and I'm just, asking, tell the truth. I'm just asking for ideas because, you know, perhaps some politicians yeah. or future politicians will be watching this right. and, and any, any suggestions that you would have could be helpful. But I, I think as well that any, um, I mean, I, I know it was a different time but I, in my own experience working with the media, I was so fortunate that by and whole I had very good media relationships. But one of the things is I had a profound respect for their work um, and that they had a profound sense of desire to serve the community, to look into 
the story behind the story and to share information all within the bounds of their professional standards. And I'm not suggesting that there aren't journalists today because there are. But I think what we have is a long train wreck that has happened over years in the making. This didn't just happen overnight where our journalistic media mainstream outlets are not so much about journalism, they are about pushing a narrative. And I, I, think, I think most Canadians would be shocked to know that 2,000 media outlets in Canada are systematically funded by the federal government. 2,000! So this local daily here in Winnipeg, as an example, has almost half its budget from the federal government. Now you tell me how they carry out their ethical journalistic standards. I'm not saying that they can't do something like reporting a, uh, um, uh, a car, tragic car trash, but their ability to contradict their funders' priorities, it, because they do have it in an agreement, like they, they carry their journalistic practice now through the lens of their funder. They have to. A, a, a conflict of interest. Are, are you aware, I, I, I have heard antidotally that, you know, because the federal government just doles out so much cash to, you know, clubs and community organizations and the like, that during COVID there would be conditions on the funding that they would support and push the vaccine mandate. Yeah. Are you familiar with that? I'm familiar with that. I would love to get my hands on a signed agreement. But I can tell you this, there are a proliferation of interests involved in this saga. And each one of them needs to be looked at carefully. But when, when, when pharma is your main sponsor of so many things, um, one has to keep your head up and your eyes open and say, what is going on here? So I am, uh, I see these institutions and I, um, I've had enormous respect for them. There's a lot of very good people. But within that context, I think we underestimate that one of the principles of classical liberalism is the belief that we have a limited state for a reason. Now, I am not a socialist for many reasons, but a limited state is very important because you need to keep room for the, most, the majority of your society, which are working people who do not work in Ottawa for the federal government or otherwise, and I'm not saying that those aren't important jobs, but the size of our state has mushroomed dramatically the last 30 years. And its tentacles are everywhere. When you are funding the media, when you are funding various institutions, including professional colleges, when you are even funding supposedly independent think tanks, and by the way, Frontier does not accept any government funding. And it does so for a reason. Because if you go along with the size of that state, you put yourself in jeopardy sooner or later. Because depending on who is the king or the queen, they may or may not understand governance. And I can tell you that time and time again, it appears that in our country, our leadership does not get governance. I'm wondering, just you know, staying on classic um, liberal principles, if you know you can comment on the importance to societies like Canada of actually having freedom of expression and freedom of belief mm -hmm. and freedom of conscience, because those seem to be things that um, are becoming. Well, I mean, people are wanting to be witnesses at this commission back down because they're they're concerned that there's going to be repercussions. And I'm just wondering if you can comment on how those things are vital to a liberal democracy. They are foundational. When we put into perspective the value of freedom of speech, it is one of the cornerstones 
of our rights and freedoms because it allows us to debate, to debate it respectfully, to get to a truth. And any student of history knows this to be true. And as we look at this, it is also foundational for our livelihood. If we, freedom of speech is the cornerstone for innovation, for our economic standard of living to move forward and our quality of life. If you look at the last 4,000 years, our standard of living would be basically a flat line. It's only in the last 250 years that we have a standard of living that has increased exponentially, that we have a microphone before me on this table and that we can be in such a lovely room. This is very recent. And therefore, if we do not have freedom of speech, but rather censorship and the imposition of the state that suggests that what is black is white and what is green is red, and what are facts are not facts, but the narrative is more important because winning is more important, and the ends justify the means, and that science does not matter, then we have lost it all. It means that we cannot innovate. And it means we don't have a future. So we have to get a hold of this now. We have a window, I believe, and I hope I am wrong. We need to wake up people from coast to coast of the significance of what this is, that, that has occurred because there are lessons learned in life and such is this time to be able to look to each other with compassion in the tradition of civil society where there is a tolerance for diversity of opinion and intellectual thought and it has nothing to do with your race or your gender or whatever. It has everything to do with a belief that we came to this place in time through a long history of hard-fought fighting and civil war where many have died let alone serve to protect those rights and freedoms in many world wars. And I am so sad that it seems like, quote, educated people, educated people in my peer group of leadership that have utterly forgotten this or do not have the courage to sustain it, to serve the people. Mr. Lease, I've been trying to think, um, you know, how do we, and obviously the Commission's mandate is to come up with recommendations on how to change things. And, and one common theme that we've seen with witness after witness, um, and I think uh, Dr. Batachera was saying that is you, you can't ever get a single public health official or even a private spokesperson. We had one person, you know, pointing out two people that get paid money to be kind of the go-to experts for the media, one I think at the University of Calgary. Um, but these people will never debate. And we had uh, that radio journalist, I think on day one, indicating that, you know, he tried to get a debate with um, Dr. McCullen, another. They'll never come to debate. And it, it seems to me that one change going forward would be that public officials or anyone that is willing to privately comment in the media, plus our politicians, would have to be required by law to reasonably engage in debate mm -hmm. and explanation so that things cannot be done without reasons being given anymore. And I'm just wondering if you could comment on that and then if you had any other ideas on, you know, assuming we could get our institutions back on how mm -hmm. to prevent this. Well, debate is uh, so essential, intellectual friction, we call it at Frontier, because um, it is remarkable what we can learn from our intellectual um, opponents or persons that frankly don't agree with us. What I have noticed 
is that as our society has tilted more and more towards, um, I would refer to them as authoritarian impulse, we have lost um, or frankly don't teach enough about basic points of logic. There's some 26 logical fallacies, and one of which is the most important one, which is never attacked your opponent personally, ad hominem attack. And yet this is the common theme that has gone on through this uh, crisis. And this is a, a huge flag that debate is being diminished because instead of discussing the issues or the concerns, the thoughtful questions that so many citizens have brought forward, it is endless tax attacks of being a white racist or a person of whatever privilege, when in fact what is going on is not serving people. What is going on is policy-making decision that protects privilege of the few, that protects power and, and money. And this is atrocious, and so therefore debate is critical. We should be seeking that, requesting that as a matter of course. And I would say that one of the institutions that I am deeply disturbed by and I frankly believe is in crisis is the law profession. In a high-functioning, healthy society, it is one of the most important responsibilities of the state is to undertake its judicial function, to ensure the rule of law is being respected. There are no arbitrary arrests on someone's property or in their garden. There is trial by jury. We're all equal before the law, and the state is not privileged before the law. The law is above the state. And just to be clear, our tradition of freedom is dependent on the concept of the common law. The common law is beginning with the Magna Carta and the meadow in Runnymede. Before an atrocious king, John I, and in that meadow, they agreed to basic things that are now in jeopardy. And as I recall, chapter 18, by John Locke in his second treatise on government, is essentially the point that with the end of law, specifically common law, comes tyranny. And that is what we face clearly in the eye today. And 2023 is the prospect of tyranny. And I do not use that word lightly. But this is the ugly reality that we face. So if we look at a 360 degree view of this crisis, it is one of policy disaster, but it is one where civil society has been assaulted. Well, it, it's curious that you cite John Locke and his principle that if the rule of law ends, that we end up in tyranny because tyranny is simply unfettered discretion. Correct. And we've experienced basically unfettered discretion in our public health officials and absolute deference of those decisions by our politicians. So it seems to me that we've just experienced the exact problem that, that John Locke described in the second treaties of government. Indeed, and, and, and when we look at the courts then, the place for prominent public debate then is the judge who realizes that the responsibility is not to the state, not to the public health official, but to the truth. And this is where debate happens in, in a high-functioning society, among other quarters. It's part of the culture. It's part of the ethos. It's in the media. It's in the universities who are many on leave, absent, silent. What is the point of tenure? 
a job for life if you can't speak up with confidence. I doubt if anyone here has tenure, and yet they're speaking up. But this has always been the lesson of history. I have studied thousands of years of history. It's always been the few who have stood up with courage and said, no more. That's, that's well said. I'm wondering um, if the commissioners have any questions for Mr. Lees. Thank you for your testimony. We've heard testimony about from people who have earned despair, anger, cynicism with regard to government. We've heard testimony of, over the last few days and from Truro and Toronto about the political world bouncing from one negative and inhumane aspect to another with less and less making sense. It used to be, not that long ago, that we could somehow interpret our world based on motivations of self-interest and greed or something to that effect. At least it was a behavioral starting point by which we could then make our world or model our world and think about what we might change. But post-pandemic, there is a form of irrational nihilism that makes little or no sense either from the part of, point of view of rationality or the point of view of sensibility and feeling. And in fact, our freedoms and lives are now being circumscribed by all levels of government. Therefore, it shouldn't come as a surprise from an intellectual sense or maybe even a spiritual sense that there are many feeling lost in how our institutions are acting in that one mind context that Sean just alluded to. But what steps can citizens, like the citizens here in this room or who are watching online, what steps can we take as uh, just citizens to change what is happening in our institutions? Thank you for your question. It's a very wise and insightful one. I think that there's many things citizens can do, one of which is to speak up within your family context, uh, within your community, to be involved, particularly at the local level. I think that uh, participating in the local democratic process is vital. I ran um, years ago when I was 19 years old. And um, I was, it was a natural part of my family culture. And I would encourage people, no matter what their age, to get, engage. Because there has been a vacuum of people engaged in the civic process. And that has, I believe, given a vacuum for other nefarious interests, quite frankly, who do not subscribe to these basic assumptions around freedom and what it makes for a fair and democratic society. They believe that in many ways their cause is beyond question, and they believe the ends justify the means. And I have unfortunately studied for years the world of the Frankfurt School. I know all their sorry stories, their tactics, and their strategies. And they have methodically done the long march through our institutions. And this is apparent, and we need to wake up to this reality and call it out. And citizens, I encourage you to read, not dive into the mindless world of Netflix as much as we enjoy entertainment as well. But it behooves us to be informed about this history. And there's many resources I can recommend, and also through the Frontier Center, I encourage you to look at it. And do not be dissuaded by what people call you names. If they do so, then this is shame on them and take heart and courage because this is the reality that we face, frankly, an ideological, destructive, toxic opponent within our own communities who do not care about you. They only care about their twisted, idealistic, nihilistic view of the universe. And that kind of utopianism has done throughout history enormous damage this is the story of totalitarianism, whether it has been China, and I've seen the monuments to over 100 million people, and I have been to the, uh, the you know, places in the former Soviet Union and Russia, and Nazism. The Nazis were socialists. 
And this is almost like a perverse hybrid that we have today. It's a toxic mishmash of a state that is out of control with crony capitalists, with people who don't seem to be grounded in basic things of freedom and respect for each other. I was always excited about our society because I felt that, wow, we live in a society where we as individuals respect each other because you're precious. Each, each individual is precious and that we can cooperate. We can work together in freedom. That's the brilliance of it. We can innovate. We can start up a business. We can set up a, a church. We can set up a mosque. But we can be together, though, as shoulder to shoulder as Canadians. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your presentation. I was wondering, uh, when you see that the, there's many country in the Western Hemisphere that has adopted more or less the same thing as Canada and many other countries, there's a few states, if you want, <clears throat> that stand out. And, there's a few states in the United States, but I'm thinking about Sweden that has been demonized by the mainstream media initially, but now seems to get some sort of more positive coverage. Uh, based on your analysis of the way they manage the pandemic, what is it that makes them different? Is it the culture? Is it the institution that somewhat were strong enough to resist to the temptation of moving in the same direction as everybody else? What is your take on Sweden? Okay, it's a, it's a very interesting question. Thank you. So Sweden is a very interesting case study for many, many reasons. We were very intrigued by Sweden from the, the get-go based on the approach that was taken by their uh, 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 public health officials. And it was interesting because, in many respects, they would say they were following best practices. But Sweden was doing something in addition to that. They have um, an extensive culture and set of plans that relate to emergency management, and they followed those plans. This is not known by many people. So this should inform any thoughtful decision maker because what is interesting is the results of Sweden are stunning. They, in retrospect, did it right. And I was shocked uh, when I read the New York Times last week that there was actually um, an article commending it. I, I, I'm just, anyways. So this is a situation that we can learn from Sweden. And what's also fascinating is that there's an associative frontier. His, his name is Dr. Martin Koldorf. He's one of the authors, one of the three authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. And he said something very interesting to me the other day uh, because I asked him the similar question about Sweden. And he said unequivocally, the, con the quote, consensus, and I hate words such as consensus, but the consensus is that Sweden did it right. But what's also fascinating is he said something to me in the same conversation. He said, during a dark time in the world, there was a select group of people in a country called Canada who got into their trucks and drove across the country and they woke up the world. And that's what he said. I said, so Martin, are you saying, like he is the preeminent public health official and biostatistician, I believe, in the world. And I said, Martin, are you saying that the, the truckers made a difference and gave you hope? And he said, that's exactly what I'm saying. So take heart. By the way, he's a Swede. Good afternoon. I have a, a couple of questions. Uh, first, I just wanted a bit of a clarification. You know, I often find that um, details get lost when we when we use a blanket statement and one blanket statement. And I know why 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 we talk that way is that our institutions have failed us. 
Well, our institutions in Canada don't just include government institutions, they include our private institutions. So I'd like to talk to you just a bit about those institutions and ask you some very pointed questions. Did our police services fail us? I think it depends which one and what analysis I could look at um, there. I mean, I've been certainly involved in police services. I don't pretend to be able to give a generalization, but generally they went along with it. They're in a bit of a box when it comes to accountability and under the acts. Um, but I think the uh, type of testimony you heard today was astounding. And even within those units, because the police are essentially paramilitary, there needs to be strong leadership and debate. There needs to be debate. And if there isn't, that's bad leadership. You, you know, you, you mentioned that it's a paramilitary outfit, and I don't want to dwell too much longer on the police because I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a hook come around me and pull me off the chair. <laughs> Um, but, you know, we heard testimony in, in Toronto by a fellow by the name of Vincent Gersey, who was with the OPP, and he said, uh, and I asked him a few questions, and he said that when he went to the Ottawa protests, he immediately recognized, very, very similar to, um, to Mr. Abbott, realized when he went to Milk River, that this was a peaceful group. And so I said to him, how is it possible then that the police who attacked that group didn't also recognize that? And I believe that was a failure. We don't want robots, yeah. even in a paramilitary outfit. That's right. So my next question is, did our health system fail us? You know, we heard testimony of, of uh, health officials that were lying to us. We heard testimony yesterday of people who feel that they lost their loved ones because they wouldn't get treatment in the hospital because they were, for a term that we all perhaps biblically understand as lepers, we were treated as sort of our medical system overall, not, not individuals. There were individuals are heroes, there always are. But overall, did our medical system serve Canadians? I would say generally not. I think despite having extraordinary people in the system, yes. the system itself is not able to serve Canadians. And I want to be clear, the system itself, and Frontier has done extraordinary work on this over the years with many different international partners, ranks at near the bottom of OECD countries, and number two, it consistently ranks as the most expensive or second most expensive in the world with some of the lowest performing outcomes. Our model should be France and Germany and Sweden, not Canada. Canada mm -hmm. is unfortunately has an extraordinarily Soviet style healthcare system that has any one time five to six million people on waiting lists in chronic many on chronic pain. It does not serve Canadians well, but it's not for they're not trying to try. And no amount of money and I'm sorry to tell this, no amount of money will change that. My next one is, and I think you've already answered this, did our judicial system fail us, or has it failed us, or is it continuing to fail us? It's continuing to fail us because so many ju uh, decisions, certainly that I've read and others have read, um, the, the fact pattern is obvious that judges have forgotten their job. It is not to genuflect to the state, it is to do their job to seek the truth and to seek the common law. Did our educational system fail us? Did they protect our children? And by protection, I don't mean putting a mask on them. I mean serving the function of creating people that could be informed citizens. Uh, generally not, because we have, again, a public monopoly directed by state actors and that has been largely infested now with ideologues that are seeking not a high-performing education system based on the fundamentals, and I can give a long list on frontier evidence of what that is, but it is a system that's characterized by um, wokeism, if you will, an ideology that is uh, seeking um, uh, this endless uh, parade of statements around tolerance when in fact it is intolerant. 
Do you believe that our religious institutions led us spiritually through this in general terms? They were always stars. Well, these are far-reaching questions, and I, I don't want to pretend to be an oracle. What I'm suggesting is that it depends on the specific case, and I'm part of that failure. I was part of a church community that had enormous fear and, quite frankly, was um, in a context where there was not a willingness. A, a, a church is voluntary. That's part of the, the genius of civil society institutions. They're voluntary. They come together. And in our case, we had many people that were older who said, I, I, I don't want to take a risk. I am so sad that the powers that be, combined with the media, did a horrible number on the psychological well-being when their emphasis time and time again was fear. Why? In heaven's name, any logical analysis, why would you feature on case count on a daily basis is beyond me. It means absolutely nothing. And yet they did. And everybody knows this. But of course, the media are in a vortex where they want clicks and, and people that reviewed. But there was something else going on. And this is something that people should never forget. And you need to be informed about this. And I have seen this unfold. There's a long history of this. And this is the control of much of our social media by nefarious state actors. And the Twitter files show that. And if you don't know that, please read just a part of the Twitter files. And if you want me to do a day lecture, I will. <laughs> but this is the reality. There, there seemed to be, and seems to be, an ever-increasing marriage between corporations and government, not for the, not for the benefit of the people. Um, historically, I'm aware of what happens when that, when that has occurred in the past. And I wonder if you could comment a little bit about what you have seen or what your concerns are when the government and the corporate world become so large, so opt octopus-like that there's no escape from them, which is, I think, believe where they are now. Okay, so this is a profound question. Um, when the state gets so large, it suffocates everything with its agenda. And in a way that is very harmful to society, and it, it nurtures a particular ecosystem within society. Namely, large corporations love large government because they're able to manipulate them. They're able to squeeze out their competition through regulatory frameworks. This is well known. I did it myself when I was a senior person in a corporation. I was always trying to squeeze out my opponent. But it does not mean that we shouldn't have fair laws and regulation that allows people to compete, including the little guy. So what they did is during COVID-19 is a case study of stupidity. We could go to Walmart, we could go to the liquor store, but we can't go to church. We can't go to the local store. On what rational basis do you do that? There is none. And more to the point, the attack on small business is an attack on democracy in the sense that if you look at history, again, you look back to ancient Greece, the ancient Minos was a cornerstone to Athenian democracy because the Minos, the middle class, if you will, in some measure, had a small plot of land, they were able to farm, they were able to do their thing. And now, and now our governments, it's almost like there's a systematic policy to get rid of the middle class, the people who are not poor and dependent on the state, and conversely, the super rich who have their own agenda at the top echelons of power. It's like there's no middle. That's what they're doing. And I don't know if it's fully intentional, some would argue, or unintentional because of stupidity or incompetence, pardon my language. So in this case, we have a situation where 
In, why is that important? For, for democracy to succeed, we need people who have the ability to earn a living, to be able to create a life, to create a family, to be able to participate in civic affairs. And that takes years of apprenticeship. It doesn't happen overnight. But these things have been dissolving around us for years. And we need to grab a hold of it now before it's done. That's my point. Yes. One of the, one of the things that is continuing to go along, and I noticed, uh, I, th I think I saw a news article just yesterday, where Sh I think it's Shaw and Global, is that? Rogers. The, uh, Rogers are joining together in a monopoly, another monopoly. How is it that we have anti-combines laws in this country, but they seem to only apply to small companies? And, and I'll give you an example. I'm familiar with a, uh, a company who was trying to buy a grain terminal in, in a particular rural town, and they, they owned one already, but the other one had gone out of business some years before. So they decided they would buy that grain terminal, and the combines legislation, federal government prevented them from doing it. So how is it that the federal government isn't preventing this union that was just announced in the, in the press a day or so ago? Well, I could certainly um, talk about some of the analysis I've read. I, I just think that it's, for me, hard to square the circle how fewer providers, particularly in that, that market of telecommunications, serves anyone better. And I think part of the challenge that we face is, frankly, one of culture. I think that in Canada, and culture is very important, it's the behaviors that we undertake every day and how we treat each other. There's wonderful strengths about Canadian culture, one of which is there's a lot of nice Canadians. They're truly nice. I, I think people can realize that. But it's nice to the point where what would it take for us to wake up and realize that we're being abused. What would it take in our Canadian culture to wake up and realize that your rights and freedoms that you thoroughly take for granted are being trampled and usurped away by you? And I use the word usurp because usurp is one that John Locke used in his books dozens and dozens of times. This is where the government, the state, along with their friends, are taking our rights and freedoms away. And this is wrong. This is the definition of tyranny. Can you, uh, and this will be my last question. <laughs> um, uh, sorry for taking advantage of my opportunity here to talk to you. Um, can you comment at all on the current rewrite of the Canadian Broadcasting Act and how that might, uh, that might affect um, some of the, uh, our ability to uh, counter the mainstream media narrative? Yes, I can. Uh, in particular, Bill C-11, as a case in point, is um, very disturbing. It is not, in my belief, and, and so many others about uh, protecting and advancing Canadian content. It is positioning the chess piece for censorship. This is very disturbing. And so when it goes back to citizen action, you need to understand that this particular government is not about free speech. And it is also behooves each one of us to understand that your social media is still problematic. Part of the problem for democracy is who controls information. And this has been the test of history, and this has always been the case. And so when you look at a, any type of search with Microsoft to Google, all these have algorithms that I can, you can see that there's problems when it comes to the free flow of information. And this is part of the reason why so many Canadians are still in many respects, asleep about this issue.